I got some great news for us. We have been praying. As you know, we have four orchard campuses in Vanuatu, down in the South Pacific with Pastor James. And we have an orchard campus in Afghanistan that is joining us right now, live. They, under, under great, um, uh, they, if, if they're they're caught, it's not going to be a good thing. So we we welcome you and we pray for you. And we have been praying for some of those families there. And I have some news that one of the the families we've been praying for the most has gotten out of Afghanistan. Yeah. And it's now in a much safer situation. And we are working to bring them here to speak to you from this stage to their church family. And so we look forward to that. If you would like more information on, on some specifics, um, those of you who know Dr. David uh, Corson, feel free to talk to him or connect him with him afterwards. Um, but that, I just thought I, I couldn't help but share that good news. I got permission to share that today. And that, that just uh, brought me so much joy this week. Now let's start. We've been in the book of John for over a year. If you're just now joining us, you're like, well, I, I came at the, the end of a movie. I mean, we had the resurrection last week. But here's the truth. No matter where you are in your faith journey, no matter where you are in your spiritual life, if you're just joining us today and, and you're a church veteran or you're a rookie or you're just checking it out, God has something for you today. He is going to speak something for you to hold on to, to take home, to maybe perhaps change your life. And I'll, it all starts with one question. Can you imagine your worst or weakest moment of your life defining the rest of your life? I mean, imagine some of the things that you did in college before there were cell phones. Can we all just be grateful that there were no no cell phones when I was in college? I'm very grateful for that. Um, But but could you imagine in a moment of weakness, um, some people seeing that and, and they define the rest of your life and reputation based on one of your weakest moments or biggest failures? How would that feel? Some of you might have got a nickname from someone, one of the, some of those things. Some of you might have been in a fraternity or sorority and got a nickname that still sticks with you to this day. But, 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 but there, today we're talking about a nickname. We're looking at Doubting Thomas. Now, we don't know much about Thomas in the Bible except for one thing. What's that? He's a doubter, you know? His name tells us about his lowest moment. The most published book in the world uh, exposes this something about it. And from that, um, everyone since then has said, well, it's Doubting Thomas. I mean, could you imagine if that was you? Oh, it's Lying Daniel. It's Sinning Sam. Like, you know, whatever it would be, but it's Doubting Thomas. And so why does he get stuck with this unfortunate nickname that goes down through history? Today, we're going to look at the life of Thomas. We are... Past the resurrection, Jesus is going to show up to his disciples, and we're going to have this moment with Thomas, but I hope by the end of this message that you know more about this man and who he truly is than you have before. And maybe from now on, we don't call him so much Doubting Thomas, or if we do, we understand what it means. Now, first of all, knowing Thomas's temperament, his personality is important, and there are two schools of thought on the type of person that Thomas was. And and this matters as we look at what he might be like. The most common and traditional view of Thomas is is that he is a very, very negative, kind of a pessimist kind of person. The cup was always half empty, and it's probably gonna spill anyway, so why bother? You know, one of those guys. He's highly logical and to his core, a staunch realist. And, and as I read what they were saying about Thomas, it sounds like Spock in need of antidepressants. You know? <laughs> live, 
you know, kind of long and maybe prosper. But the other view of Thomas and the one that I subscribe to is much different than this view of Thomas that a lot of people talk about. I view Thomas as a very passionate person who has a deep heart for Jesus and a deep faith. He was sincere in his interaction with others. And because he was a fervent person, his fierce dedication and emotions brought him at times to, 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 to great heights, but also we know to, to, to great valleys. With all that in mind, let me tell you a little bit more about Thomas. As we've been going through the book of John, we've, we've skimmed past or we've read past some of the, the parts about him, but I wanted to choose today to go back and open it up to see who this man is. In John 11, we have Jesus hearing about Lazarus. Remember his friend who died, and Jesus waits before traveling to see him. And what is important to know here is that the place that Jesus wants to return to is the very place where he had almost been stoned. They tried to stone him. They tried to kill him and the disciples. They had left that place because of those things. And what makes the disciples nervous about when Jesus says, let's go see Lazarus, is that all the disciples, they're nervous because, well, we were just there, and there's a high probability of someone trying to kill us. Like, we might die if we go back there. Our rabbi, people are after him. They're going to try to kill Jesus. But Jesus insists they go. And so the disciples are a bit nervous because their rabbi, remember, that's their teacher, the disciple, that's who they follow. They want to be like him. His life is at stake. And we find Thomas in John eleven sixteen saying this. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, the two temperaments. This is why it matters. The far more traditional temperament of Thomas, the very negative and pessimist and, and fatalistic, that, this is something he would say, well, we're as good as dead. We may as well get on with it. Fine. Let's go to our deaths. Uh, but if Thomas is who I think he is, then this takes on a different flavor. What he's saying here. You see, Thomas is he's committed to doing everything his rabbi does. Um, disciples, the word is Talmudin. And a Talmudin wouldn't want to just do what their teacher says, not just learn what their teacher says. It was a different kind of school. They wanted to be like their rabbi. The goal of every disciple was to not just get information, but have transformation and become like the one they're following. Can I get an amen? Maybe a little bit today. Maybe we should be doing some of that, right? We don't want to just know what Jesus said and, and know more about it, know more about him. We want to be like him. That was, the, that was the context that Thomas followed in. He wanted to be everything that his rabbi talked about. He wanted to embody every teaching his rabbi spoke. And he wants to, 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 to follow his rabbi in all things. He's dedicated himself to being like Jesus. He's followed Jesus all over the countryside and the cities. And he has been in the middle of a lot of glorious and a lot of dangerous and perilous and dark situations. And when Jesus tells the disciples that he's returning to a place where there's a possibility or probability of, of a threat on their life, Thomas looks at the rest of the disciples and says, if that's what the rabbi wants, I am ready to die with him. I, I believe it was more of a passionate statement than this negative fatalistic, well, we might as well get on with the death. No, 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 no. If that's where, if he's going to die, then you will find me there dying with him. And Thomas is mine. As a disciple, after three years, where Jesus goes, I will be. Where Jesus goes, and if even it's to his death, I will go there with him. 
It doesn't sound like someone who should be remembered for their great amount of doubt. The next time we see Thomas is in John 13. Jesus has the disciples together and begins to tell them that he will be leaving them soon. He's going to be going and he won't be with them much longer. Now, this kind of news from a rabbi to a disciple to a Talmudim would have been crushing. It would have been confusing. What do you mean you're leaving? A follower without the leader is not a follower anymore. What do you mean you're leaving us? Once more, a disciple who had a deep love for their rabbi, who dedicated three years to being like them and following him. This news would have been life-shattering, life-altering, confusing, concerning. Where are you going? When are you going? Why are you leaving us? And then Jesus begins to comfort them by telling them that he's leaving them, but he's going to prepare a place for them. I'm going to go prepare a place. Then he says, you will know the way to the place I am going. The disciples, they are still in shock. They're in confusion. What do you mean you're leaving and preparing a place and we'll know the way? But but Thomas is the one who has this, this burning question. He asks what they're all wondering. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And you can almost hear some of the panic or some of the fear in Thomas's voice. We don't know where you're going. You see, I want to be where you are, Jesus. And if you're going, how can we know the way? Here's a young disciple who's already said, I will follow you even unto death. Wherever you go, I will be there. Thomas's fear is that Jesus is going to leave him behind without any way to find him. Thomas's fear here is that Jesus will disappear, leave him, and he won't know how to find Jesus. Note that. But it doesn't sound like doubting Thomas to me. Now let's look at the five-letter word called doubt. Let's crack this word open. Doubt has become a dirty word in churchianity. Within the walls of, of a lot of churches and the culture of church, there's this sense that if somebody has doubts, well, their faith just isn't as strong as it should be. If they admit that they have doubt... Well, it's a question, it's a matter of their faith. Doubt is often seen as the enemy of faith. And the last thing that anyone in a place like this would want to open their mouth and admit to somebody else that they're feeling. To say like, okay, honestly, I don't know about some of this stuff. Like what this guy's saying up there, I'm not sure about that. Or in Bible study or in small group. Like, like, are you, I just have some questions about this. That is not always, that's actually rarely appreciated in a lot of Western Christian cultures. In many cases, it seems as though we would rather fake it and keep our doubts and mouths shut than to open up and let people know that we're struggling with them. Just fake it, smile, and say, let go and let God. Yes, yes. How you doing, brother? The two-handed shake. <laughs> Churches haven't been kind to doubters. I, uh, having been in this job long enough, I've talked to so many people who have been wounded by the church, well mean, wounded by well-meaning churches. And then I'm not throwing churches under the bus. Churches are full of people like you and me, imperfect people. What do I always tell you? If you find the perfect church, don't go there because you'll ruin it. Like we are just imperfect, <laughs> you know? We are imperfect people representing a perfect God. 
And therefore, there's going to be some trouble. And I, I know so many stories about people. There's one in particular. Uh, there was this uh, high schooler, a middle, it was a middle schooler. And he says, he was asking the teacher in Sunday school, um, is this really true about God? They were talking about something. Did God really say this and write this? And the Sunday school teacher said, quote, I think you need to leave. And I'd rather you not come back on Sundays until you can agree to learn alongside the rest of the class. See, he had an honest doubt. He had a potentially dangerous question he was asking. And he was told to fall in line or leave. When it comes to doubt, many churches have ado- adopted a don't ask, don't tell, pos- don't ask, don't tell policy. And personally, I just want to make it known that doubters of any sort have a welcome place here at the orchard. I dabble in doubt myself. Doubt is part of it. If you're a doubter, if you have doubts about some things, you're in a safe place. You're in a place where you can, you can verbalize those in our Bible studies, in our growth groups. Maybe not right here during this time, but find me afterwards and let's talk. You know, this is a safe place. And we're going to talk about doubt and what it actually is. If you've been feeling guilt because of your doubt, let me alleviate some of those feelings. Doubt in and of itself isn't a bad thing. And deep questioning and deep questions about God and life are not a sin. And why is that? Because doubt is one of the most valuable tools that God uses to grow immature followers into effective men and women of faith. Without wrestling through doubt, you will not mature and you will not grow. Without doubt, your faith will remain undeveloped and unable to face circumstances that come. And if you're still feeling bad about doubt, let me know some of the company of people that you're in. Just in the Bible, Abraham, prophet Isaiah. I mean, Moses talked about crippling doubts. Then you have David and all the disciples. That's just a short list of the who's who of who dealt with doubt in the word of God. I honestly believe that if God had wanted us to live a life free from doubt, if that's what he, had, if that's what he expects of you, then we'd have a step-by-step instruction detailed with no room for interpretation, just black and white, and God would be visible, audible, and he would direct your every decision. And, and life wouldn't throw you any curveballs. There would be no surprise pandemics. There would be no bad diagnoses. There would be no unexpected relational failure to make us ask deep questions. Because circumstances in life and tragedies make us ask questions. And so those would have to be removed. I believe if doubt were not a part of the equation, all the answers to those dangerous questions of life and faith would be resolved. But if all that were true, if all that were true, there wouldn't be any need for faith. So let's go ahead and admit that doubt is just part of this. Doubt happens. Doubt is part of what it means to be human. When you live in a world that talks about an afterlife, or an eternal soul, or a divine God. Or, and and you, then you add in a very high probability of dying. <laughs> like There is going to be questions, deep questions, and doubt. And then there are the circumstances. Circumstances that life throws at us. 
that prompt big questions within us. And you could be in the midst of this right now. I mean, when tragedy happens, deep questions arise. When, when relationships fail, deep questions arise. And we got to be honest, these questions are being asked all the time. I myself have, have, have been in places where I have just yelled in, in heartbreak and anger, God, how could you let this happen? Where are you? As circumstances have brought me such tragedy and turning of events, that the questions that came up with that were so close to my heart. See, these can be seen as dangerous. But in life, we have life's circumstances and questions happen. Now, I'm going to um, abbreviate a lot of things, and this is going to be messy, and you're not going to be able to see a lot of it. So on, if you're drawing notes, just you scribble too. And if, if, if you're listening to this and not watching on video, just imagine the most amazing diagram in the world that's about to unfold that you're missing. And you highly doubt that, I'm sure. Um, there's an eternity of circumstances that happen to us. And you've been through these circumstances that have happened that have led to deep questions about God, about faith, about life. And what they do, these circumstances, these questions, they lead us into doubt. And I want to redefine some terms for us as we go through this. Some people believed that doubt is the opposite of belief and faith, but that's not true. Belief, and I'll put this, belief is going to be this capital B over here. Belief is to be of one mind, to be in agreement with something. So we over here, we have belief. The opposite of belief is unbelief. It means to, re- be, it means to be, not be of one mind, but to be rejecting something or to be of one mind Rejecting it. Now, doubt is neither. Doubt is neither belief or unbelief. Doubt is suspended between the two. See, and this is what you need to know. Doubt is actually a crossroads. You guys, let me make sure you can hear that. Just want to make sure I get that in there. When it comes to these, when these questions and circumstances arise and they come up and they cause us to doubt, doubt is a crossroads. Doubt is a crossroads. And we can make a decision to, to lean into unbelief, to make the statement, I will not believe, to lean into that. And if we, if we do that when it comes to Jesus and God, what that results in what the, if we have doubts about this faith, lean into unbelief, the result when it comes to Jesus and God is faithless. We don't have faith. Unbelief, I will not believe, leads to faithless. But if, even though if there is doubt, even though we have questions, even though we have circumstances in this life that lead us into doubt, if we lean into God's truth, if we pursue Jesus in that, if we lean into belief and we pursue God and we wrestle through doubt into belief, then this actually goes into a stronger faith. 
a faith that is deeper, more established, that is fought through the forge and the fire of doubt and come out as a stronger, deeper faith. We have that. We get to believe it is a crossroads. But there's also another path. There's another path. You see, there are those of us in Christian circles who believe that doubt is in and of itself a bad thing. And also, when we have a young or shallow faith, doubt is seen as something to be afraid of, to be avoided. Those deep questions, when those circumstances arise, some people, when when these things happen, they, they, they see that they're heading into doubt and they just detour over here into what I call cliche Christianity. A faith that is just defended by cliches. And if you live in cliched Christianity, never going through, never wrestling through the forge and fires of doubt and just going over here every time, then what your faith will look like is a shallow faith or a blind faith. But not blind because it can't see, but blind because it refuses to look. Blind because it refuses to inspect So when we get to doubt, we can lean into belief or unbelief. And for many of us, for some of us, we we detour before we get to doubt. I don't want to be in any doubt. And therefore, I will be in cliche Christianity of shallow faith. You see, the reality is, I believe the cliches that we have gotten used to, that the unbelieving world has gotten used to hearing from us, I believe these need to, I believe we need to stop this. The reality is that a a real faith has been through a real battle, a real wrestling with doubts through real circumstances, real struggles, real questions. And the person who follows Jesus and authentically has gone through those things can authentically talk about it. I don't need cliches to defend my faith. I can tell you where I struggle. I can tell you where I've been hurt. I can tell you it hasn't been all puppy dogs and rainbows in this walk of the spiritual journey. No, no, it's, there's been some dark seasons, dark valleys. And, and, and true followers of Jesus, you can open up and talk like this because your faith has been forged in the fire of doubt. Those cliches and the shallow faith of have, have done us no favors in an unbelieving world. So remember, when it comes to doubt, which we, you will face at some point, unless you're just always detouring, likely you will face doubt. You have a choice. It's not that doubt is bad. It's what you do in the doubt. It's what you do with the doubt that makes all the difference in your spiritual life. Now, from here, let's look at Doubting Thomas, and now he gets his name. I'm going to pick the story up in Mark 16, because it adds just a tidbit in before we get back to John. This is after the death and resurrection, and here it is. Mary has seen Jesus, verse 16, verses 9. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary. She went and told those. She went and told the disciples who'd been with him who were mourning and weeping. What were they doing? Mourning and weeping. Grieving that morning. She comes in. Can you imagine the mood she's in? Can you imagine that door knock? Guys! The next verse. When they heard that Jesus was alive and she had seen him, they did not believe. They did not believe. Now, this is incredible. Oh, it was, how many were there? It says that those who, she went to the, and told those who had been with him, 
So Thomas is there. Who else is there? The other disciples. So here we have this equation that's starting to show itself here. They hear, they hear, they hear, and what do they do? They immediately doubt. They did not believe. Not just Thomas, Peter, John, all of them did not believe. Maybe she's lost it. Maybe, you know, in her grief, she's just thinking she saw some things. Maybe she just wants it so bad she saw, you know, the guy with the sash and the beard and she thought it was Jesus, you know? Who knows? But we don't believe it. Moving on, we turn to John 20, verse 19. We find those very same disciples that refused to believe Mary. Um, it says on the, in 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors were locked in fear of the Jews. And that and is capital J Jews there. What it means is the authorities, the priests, the, the, the ones who captured Jesus, they're afraid now they're going to come capture them. So they lock the door, they're crying, they're mourning, they're wondering, what are we doing with our lives? Can you imagine what this meeting was like? Yeah, you can't remember, stop, put yourself in. We don't know what it was like, but I can imagine myself being there in that room. We all were following Jesus around. We all saw amazing things. We saw, you know, Peter walked on water for a little while. And then we, we saw the fish and the loaves. We saw all those things. And now we saw him die. We're here in this awful support group in this house. Hi, I'm Peter. I believed in Jesus. I mean, we're just heartbroken. We're wondering where it went wrong. We're wondering, what well, did we waste three years of our life? What, what's going on here? But then it says that there in that meeting, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you, which is always what you say if you appear in someone's room. Okay? That's just, that's rule number one in my book. Jesus appears in the room and says, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Look, he says, look, look. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw this. So we have this equation. This equation. They hear he's risen. They hear it and they doubt. But then, but then after that, they see. And what does seeing lead to? Belief. Then they believe. So on the first half right here, they hear and they doubt, but then they see and they believe. And the truth is, and we'll get into this later in the series, every t- anytime you go through that and you believe, the next step is always to go tell. So here we are. They're moving. Let's get down to verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples at this time. He wasn't there. The question in my mind has always been, where was Thomas? Like, maybe he was in charge of the coffee that morning, or maybe, who, who knows where he was? It could be that he was so heartbroken and so confused that he preferred to mourn in private. Maybe he didn't want to go to a support group um, about Jesus without Jesus. You know? I'm sure he, his world was devastated. He, Thomas is likely trying, he's thinking back, trying to make sense of the last three years based on the last three days. What do I do with this? I have watched Jesus, whom I loved, whom I followed, be beaten, hung on a cross, died. I saw it all. And maybe he went and, and he was alone. He didn't want to be with them. We've all had these moments, if we admit it. We have these moments where what we believe collides with what life throws at us. 
where what we believe is supposed to happen or God's going to do collides with what life brings us. How can I believe this about God when life hands me this? You ever been there? Let's be honest with our doubts. I've been there. You may be there now. For Thomas, being with the uh, other 10, for whatever reason, that day didn't work for him. Maybe the last thing he wanted to be doing was grieving Jesus with others. Because Thomas, remember, his previous fear was that Jesus was going to leave and I won't know where to find him. And he's living it. 25. So the other disciples told him, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Again, remember, Mary said, hey guys, he's real. Or he's resurrected. No, they, Jesus, you're, we believe. Thomas, we've seen him. He is alive. It's the same exact equation. But Thomas said, unless I see the nail marks, which they got to, and they told him about that. And unless I get to put my finger where the nails were and my hands in his side, I will not believe. He makes a statement, I will not believe. In the doubts that have been crippling me through the circumstance, I've been leaning into my unbelief. I'm not, I'm not coming to the meetings. I'm not showing up. It doesn't sound like someone who's, the, who's just like a staunch realist. It sounds like someone who's passionately heartbroken, trying to adjust the circumstances he's facing with all that has happened. And he says, unless I see, I will not believe. Thomas is in the same equation therein. Reading in verse 26, a week later, the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Stop right there. That's a huge statement. And I know you're like, what? Huh? It just tells us who's there. This is a huge statement. It's been a week. It's been seven days. No one has seen Jesus. Thomas for seven days has been waiting for this. He hasn't seen anything and is still in confusion. But Thomas does something right there in that verse that is huge for anyone in doubt. He shows up. Thomas shows up. And for many of, many of us struggling in doubt, the best thing we could do is simply show up to the places where we can pursue our faith. Because when you show up, when you are wrestling in doubt and you show up, you are declaring with yourself, I want to believe. I want to believe. I'm showing up in expectation that God, you're going to show up. Listen, doubt is the proving ground. Doubt is the proving ground of faith. And if you don't show up, you cannot fight. So where do you need to show up based on your doubts? See, I don't know what showing up means for you. It could be that today you're here in a chair in this room and that is you showing up despite some very real doubts. It could be that it, you're showing up in other places during the week. It could be tomorrow morning you need to show up and privately meet with God for the first time in a long time and lean into belief. Maybe it's attending that Bible study. Maybe it's going to that growth group or small group and finally getting honest with somebody else about this. It's okay here. And if you go to an orchard, small group or Bible study and they tell you, hey man, you need to get in line or don't come back, then you please come see me. <laughs> I would like to talk to that person. 
wherever the place is that you have doubt, wherever you have questions, the greatest thing you can do is take a, take a page from Thomas's book and show up and lean into belief. Back to verse 26. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them again and said, peace be with you. Imagine this moment if you're Thomas. Jesus appears. Everyone else is like, oh, there he is again. You, you, this is your first time. You lock eyes with Jesus. They're all, they're all past the doubt. They believe you're alone in your doubt. Can you imagine the feelings he would have expected? Is Jesus going to be mad at me? Is he going to rebuke me? Is he going to be disappointed? Like, oh, Thomas, there you are. You showed up this week. You shall henceforth ever be known as Doubting Thomas. That's how Jesus talks in some of those really, you know, British ones where he's like Swedish with the blonde hair. Like what? No. Jesus doesn't do any of those things. He's not angry. He's not disappointed. He, he shows up and he meets Thomas exactly where Thomas needs to be to met. Thomas said, I want to believe, but here's what I need. And Jesus shows up and goes, oh, here's what you need. He says this. Jesus said to Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hand. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Thomas. Stop doubting and believe. He isn't angry. The compassion of Jesus is amazing in this moment. He doesn't shame Thomas for his disbelief. He didn't point out, hey, Thomas, the other guys, they all got it way before you. Like you're way behind the curve. He's not gonna do that to you either. In your marriage, like you're, you're way behind your wife in this. You know, no, 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 there's no shame. He doesn't shame anybody for this part. He didn't call Thomas a weak follower. He gives him exactly what his faith and heart needed in the moment. Thomas had doubts and he showed up leaning into belief, hoping to find his rabbi. And he did. Jesus met Thomas right where his faith had been revealed. And what happens next, what is said next is, is, is said to be one of the most profound declarations of faith by any of the disciples of Jesus. In verse 28, when Thomas sees that this is Jesus, he cries out, my Lord, my God. And this has been called by many scholars, the greatest creed in the New Testament. This is no small statement. This is Thomas's faith being resurrected from the dead. And from the depths of his heart, from the depths of his soul, he declares, my Lord and my God, and never before in the Bible has anyone ever referred to Jesus as both Lord and God, Messiah and God. Jesus even asked them, who do you say I am? And they didn't say this. Thomas's declaration here is something new, a new creed that, 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 that combines so much of Jesus as Thomas is seeing the full nature of Jesus on display. Jesus goes on talking to Thomas, but I have to believe as he's talking to Thomas, there's 10 other people in the room who are struck by what he's saying. Verse 29, Jesus says, because you have seen me, you have believed. He just goes out and tell them, because you've seen me, you believed. All of you guys in this room, none of you believed until you saw me. This is what happened with the 10 disciples. This is what happened with Thomas. But the next line Jesus is about to speak isn't for anybody in that room. It's for people in this room. It's for people listening to this sermon. Wherever you are, Jesus says something in that room to those disciples that wasn't for them. It's for you. Jesus had said, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Jesus is talking to you. 
we have not seen. We have not touched. He's not appeared and said, peace be with you in your kitchen. Feel my side. You see, our equation looks like this. At some point in your life, and it could be today, you're hearing this again. You hear. And you have questions. There's some doubt. And maybe even right now, you're, you have doubt. Like, uh, I don't know what this guy's saying, you know? But for you, wherever you are, some of you, at some point in your life, you hear, and then you had doubt. And then, and then your faith wrestled, and you leaned into belief, and your faith was born, and you believed. Though you had not seen. You wrestled through doubt, not because you saw Jesus face to face. And Jesus declares that if that is you, you are blessed. The Savior said you're blessed because you've had faith, you believe in him, though you have not seen. Each one of us can find ourselves up here somewhere on this amazing diagram, life-changing um, <laughs> Each of us, we can admit, have circumstances and questions that are crippling, that are big, that are hard, that are great. And a lot of those lead to doubt. Is this true? What do I think about this? They, they, they cause us to go, is God really good? Is this really true? Any number of questions. And the first group maybe goes, doubt's bad, doubt's bad, doubt, God doesn't like doubt, I'm going over here in my cliches. I'm going to stay over here in my cliches, I'm going to stay over here in my, my shallow, blind faith, and I just want to let you know, um, shallow faith is just a taste of the faith God wants you to have. He doesn't want you to detour out of deep questions and circumstances and doubts just to preserve the cliched faith. No, no. He wants you to enter into some of those questions, wrestle with them, find him in your, in your circumstances, in your darkest days to, to, to go to him and wrestle and say, God, where are you in this? How can you let this happen? Where were you? Where are you? Do you love me? Am I worthy? Am I good? Am I really forgiven? Can you forgive that? Can you release me? I need you. I have these desires in my heart that are unfulfilled and it's been a long time. Where are you? Or should you need to enter into these deep questions and wrestle in the forge and fire of doubt because on the other side of that is a faith that is mature and strengthened and strong. And the world out there that doesn't believe in Jesus does not need more cliches. This has done them no good. What they need is real believers who've been through real life, who can talk about it. And they can say, I know I've been there. I've been through that. And you can, you can make it through too. Let me tell you my story. For those of us in that group over here who have doubts that we're afraid to entertain, I want to let you know something about God. God is big enough for your biggest question. He's big enough for your anger at your circumstances. He's, he's big enough for all of it. You bring your biggest doubts and questions and emotions to God. He is big enough. He can take it. I think God enjoys a good question when it's asked with an honest heart. Investigate your faith. Those of us who are over here, 
maybe we've leaned into unbelief and we have no faith in God and Jesus. Oftentimes, this line right here is because of imperfect people representing a perfect God. Someone has wounded you in the past in church or something like that. I just want to say from me, I am so sorry and that was not God. And God, is, God doesn't want that to happen. But if you were over there on the unbelief side, I want to let you know something. My only request of you is that you would allow some doubt in your life. If you find yourself over here, that perhaps you would allow some doubt in your life that maybe there's more to God than you have decided. I, I would ask you to have the courage to open up to doubt because maybe there's more to Jesus than you thought. And maybe those people who misrepresented Jesus to you, maybe that's not what he's like. In closing, I want to tell you a story about a father. This father is in Mark, is in Mark 9. He comes to Jesus. He's heartbroken. He's desperate. He is down here in circumstances and questions that are just heartbreaking. His son is being tormented. His son is suffering. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you can, please heal my son and have mercy on me. And Jesus says, if I can. Jesus says, anything is possible if a person believes. If you believe, anything is possible. The father instantly cried out the word there. He cried out with emotion. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. That's where I live. That's where I live. And perhaps that could be our prayer today. Jesus healed his son. But what an authentic cry of the heart. No matter your place on the spiritual journey today, whether this is something you've been in a long time and you are, I believe in God and I'm all in, or maybe you're here checking it out, wherever you could be. Maybe this is your prayer today. Help me in my unbelief. If you've been a Christian, you've been following God for many years, you can say, I believe, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died. But there are some places and unanswered questions and circumstances where you can tell God, God, help me in my unbelief. Because the truth is, in this place, there are some of you out there who today need hope. God, help me in my unbelief about my future. There are people in here who today who have need peace. You're living in anxiety and you have given up on it. And God, help me in my unbelief that you can help me in my circumstances. Some of you stuck in vice. God, help me in my unbelief that you can free me. Some of you in your doubts and circumstances, God, help me in my unbelief that you can help me. Doubting Thomas was a man just like every other disciple. He walked the path of faith they all did. But he did one thing. In his doubt, he showed up. Orchard, that's where we need to live. Where you have doubts, show up. Lean into belief. Lean into God's word and God's truth. Lean into other relationships of people who have faith. And more than anything, God help us in our unbelief. Father God, in this room and those watching along with us, we are in circumstances that cause us to ask, where are you? That cause us to doubt. 
And I pray today that you would help us in our unbelief. Father, for those of us who are in this place listening and who live in an unbelief of you, I pray that you in your kindness would open them up to a doubt that maybe you are real. And I believe, I pray you begin to show yourself to them. And Jesus, as we take communion right now, the representation of your body and blood, we just want to declare you are head over all things. We need you. We ask that you would show up and help us in the places where we have doubt. In Jesus' name.